0: Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed.
1: Well, good morning, church. So this morning's message is entitled, Sex and Sexuality. And um, I know that oftentimes through the decades at different churches, when subjects like this came up, there might be someone who would come up to me afterwards and, uh, and say, you know, I, I really don't think you should, should preach on subjects like this. Uh, whether it's sex or it's something else going on in our culture, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the admonition would be to stick to the gospel. You know, just stick to the gospel. Let's leave politics out of the pulpit. Let's leave cultural issues that are maybe, you know, embroiling our society. Let's leave those out of the pulpit. Let's just stick to the gospel. And uh, I understand what they're coming from. I I don't like to go to a church and hear a tirade against our president or our Congress or this or that and different political things. That's not the place of the church. But as a minister of the gospel, uh, my mandate and calling from God is to preach the whole counsel of God. And uh, the gospel is very relevant to sex and sexuality. And even more so, I think we have to begin to be a little bolder and more upfront on these issues as our culture has been going through such a radical shift in even the last five, six years, much less the last 50, 60 years, that some of you can really have a stark comparison point. Let's consider this for a moment, that there was a poll done by the Gallup organization in February of this year, in February of 2022, and this is what they found. The percentage of U.S. adults who self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or something other than heterosexual has increased to a new high of 7.1%, which is double the percentage from 2012, in 10 years, when Gallup first measured it. Roughly 21% of Generation Z Americans who have been who have reached adulthood, those born between 1997 and 2003, identify as LGBT. Let me repeat that. Roughly 21% of Generation Z, 1997 to 2003, identify as LGBT. That is nearly double the proportion of millennials who do so, while the gap widens even further when compared with older generations. The percentage of Gen Z, who are LGBT, has nearly doubled since 2017, when only the leading edge of that generation, those born between 97 and 99, had reached adulthood. At that time, it was 10.5% of the same slice of the generation who were adults identified As LGBT. If you, those of you who need a picture, here's a graph that shows you what's going on. The bottom line are traditionalists, those born before 1946, 0.8%. The next are boomers, 2.6%. The next is my generation, 4.2%. Then you have millennials at 10.5 and you can see the rapid rise in the Gen Z generation. What's going on? What is going on? And by the way, even those who are very much in favor of the LGBT uh, agenda are asking that same question because they said this is not normal. There's something going on. So originally, I intended one message on the subject of sex and sexuality. Uh, But I came to realize this week before jumping into the controversies, I was was just going to do a lick and a promise on the sex part, and most of this message was going to be sexuality. Uh, But I realized I couldn't do that. We first need to pause on the sex part before we get to the sexuality part. Because I can't assume this morning that all of us have been grounded in a biblical worldview of what it is, what sex is all about and how God has designed sex. And so we have to pause here this morning, and we're going to go back to the creation of humanity, back to the garden, and to where our sex is and sexuality actually began. And there in the garden, we, some, we see something that is crucial to all of the debate and the controversies surrounding us as it relates to sex and the LGBTQ movement and everything else. And at that very first point of this message, it's our takeaway truth. And i got to say, this is like takeaway truth version 23.0. Because the more I did it, you know, I, I, my wife likes short and pithy. And so I try to go short and pithy. She's, she tells me regularly, Jerry, keep it short and pithy, right? Baby, this ain't short and pithy. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not short and pithy. Um, virtually every one of these words is important in this statement. God designed sex to be experienced by a bio- biological male and female who enjoy sexual intimacy within the bounds of a monogamous Marriage, covenant. Virtually every one of those words is important, folks. God designed sex to be experienced by a biological male or female. Even the preposition within the bounds of a monogamous, that's version 23.0, the last word I added. I realized I need to add monogamous because of the polyamory and everything else that's going on in our society marriage, covenant. Every one of these words is important. Every one of them, okay? Sex is God's creation. And he designed us as male and female accordingly. It starts in the very first page of the Bible, very first chapter. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Do you see the sex portion there? Right there, first page, male, female, now have children. And we all know how that happens, or should, unless you're too young. Um, The second page, the second chapter, the passage we just read, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, that... That verse that we referred to last week, so in depth as we talked about the meaning of marriage. This is the covenant, the leaving and cleaving, the holding fast. We are making a covenant, a man and a woman, biological male and female, make a covenant together and become one flesh. And then we read the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Sex is an important aspect of this one flesh concept in marriage. It's meant to mean more than something that is just simply physical. It involves our emotions. It involves our spirits, our spiritual aspects, our psychological aspects, everything. Sex is more than a physical hormonal act. It is an act of covenant renewal that involves all facets of our personhood. Have you ever thought of it like that? And when a husband and wife enjoy one another in sexual intimacy, you are actually renewing your covenant of commitment before God and to one another. You see the importance of this and in, in this idea in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife. Those of you who've been around for a while, you're older, maybe you've read the Scriptures a lot, you know in the Bible, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the word knew is a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. A very, very well-respected Hebrew scholar, and more than one actually, have made the point that that word knew can be translated as the mingling of the souls. Mingling of the souls. So when we understand sex this way, we can better appreciate why... This is to be experienced in a monogamous marriage relationship. We have not been designed to mingle our souls with multiple partners willy-nilly. It is one man, one woman, ideally for life. Sometimes things arise that that can't happen within a marriage, and the marriage ends under the, you know, the understanding of what God says But ideally, it's one man, one woman for life. He didn't design us to mingle our souls with multiple partners. It's it's be the joining of the opposite sex. That's important, male and female. The the mingling of two different expressions and embodiment of God's uh, image. While men and women embody many common aspects of God's image, we also embody different aspects of God's image. An important goal of the one flesh relationship and, and that principle in marriage is to take these important different aspects of the image of God, some of which are embodied in the male and some of which are embodied in the female, and to create a marriage that reflects in its unity the beauty and the glory of the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who are living as one for all of eternity. So sex is so much more than a physical and hormonal act. Now, of course, It's not less than a physical act that has hormonal aspects to it, but it's deeply emotional and spiritual with the trappings of the sacred attached to it. When we pursue sexual purity, whether we are married or unmarried, we acknowledge and we submit to God's design and his ultimate purposes for sex and marriage itself. Remember last week we were in Ephesians chapter 5, the meaning of marriage. Paul said, he quoted again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here's that marriage covenant, this relationship that's established. And then he helps us to see the sacredness of this one flesh union when he writes, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Literally what he's getting at here is that the marriage relationship and the one flesh principle that that includes that sexual intimacy that truly in all levels makes it a one flesh relationship. He said there is more to this than just the physical. It is actually saying something about the eternal redemptive purposes of God. It is pointing us to the sacrificial love And the giving that Jesus did on the cross for our sins so that we could be heirs of God. So sex is so much more than just a physical aspect. It is spiritual and sacred in its trappings. It is emotional and psychological (laughs) all combined. And when we get this and we understand this high view of sex in the Bible, we can understand why Paul would tell the Thessalonians, This is the will of God for your transformation into the image of Christ, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, And solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but he's called us for holiness. God designed sex to be experienced by a biological male and female who enjoy sexual intimacy within the bounds of a monogamous marriage covenant. All those words are important, including the enjoyment part. Aren't you glad that God designed sex as something that is pleasurable and enjoyable? And it's meant to be enjoyed within that marital relationship. We honor God when we experience and enjoy sex within a covenant marriage. We honor him when we enjoy this wonderful gift within marriage. Now, guys, don't use that as a cheesy pickup line this afternoon. For your wives, okay? She's probably probably not going to work. But the truth is there. And ladies, if he tries it, you have my permission to give him an elbow and whatever, okay? But the truth is there. Sex is so much more than just a physical act. It has the trappings of the sacred to it. And that leads us to the problem that we all have. Because of our inherent sin, humanity idolizes sex and distorts this beautiful gift from God as it rejects his original design. So what's going on? Every one of us, as human beings, because of the sin that is in us from the fall, it's inherent from the moment we're conceived, our sex lives have been corrupted and distorted in some way because of sin either in our desires, our attitudes, our actions. It can manifest itself very differently from one person to another. But the radical corruption and pervasiveness of sin does not leave our sexual desires alone. In fact, for many, this is a key area of struggle. And at the core of it, it's idolatry. Now, I need to remind you what idolatry is because this isn't a term that is used often in our society. And we think of statues that somebody, some naked native on an island in the middle of the Pacific is bowing down and offering chickens to. That's not what idolatry necessarily is. If you go back to our spiritual fathers, people like St. Augustine, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idolatry is using anything that ought to be u- worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Martin Luther wrote that the essence of every sin is a desire to be one's own savior and lord in some particular way. It is to set up some idol, which is the real way you are going to save yourself. It may even be a very religious idol. Idolatry is us turning to some aspect of creation and in an act of self-lordship, of self-worship, we turn to that item and we invest in it a, a level of importance that it's not meant to have in our lives. We rely upon it for something that we perceive that we need, either our security or our comfort, our significance, our acceptance, our purpose in life. And it's something that is not meant to take that place because only God can provide these things. Sex is one of those things that God has created that we as human beings turn into an ultimate or a tool to get what we want. When we rely upon sex to fulfill needs that only God can satisfy we at that point are twisting this beautiful gift that has the power of covenant renewal into idolatry. At the heart of every immoral sexual desire or attitude or action is self-worship, self-lordship, and idolatry. At the heart of every one of them. So our sex lives will either be an expression of gratitude and honor to God, or it will be an expression of self-reliance and misplaced worship. One of the two. No in-betweens. Paul Tripp writes in his book, Sex and Money, Even the most irreligious person expresses worship every time he engages in some kind of sexual activity, whether mental or physical. Let me say it this way. In sex, you are always worshiping something. Your sexual life is shaped by the worship of God, or the worship of self, or the worship of the other person, or the worship of what you get out of sex, What this means is that in sex, you and I are always surrendering our hearts to something. Sexual idolatry especially has an insidious consequence. It encourages wrong thinking and self-rationalization about sex, which leads to all kinds of sexual sin, sexual bondage, sexual addiction, sexual pain, sexual confusion and christians are not immune from this wrong thinking just ask the corinthians there's a major portion of the book of corinthians that is addressing christians who have committed their lives to christ who think wrongly about sex paul writes in 1 corinthians chapter 6 do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that in the list of that sexual sin in the middle, he he puts idolatry. Again, it's idolatry. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now he begins to quote the Corinthians, some of their self-rationalizations. Everything is permissible for me. Mm, Paul says, no, but they're not. No, not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Mm, But God's going to destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In this one passage, Paul does two things. I'm going to go back to the beginning of it here again. He does a couple of things. First, he reiterates that those of us who follow Christ will reject and repent of all forms of sin which we may turn to and worship for ourselves and for our own ends instead of worshiping Christ. He, he has a long list here. So, for example, greed, the love of money, the substance abuse, tearing down others to build ourselves up, being dishonest and lying to get what we want. These are all rejections of Jesus's lordship. This is us at that moment choosing to worship ourselves or this thing in order to get what we perceive that we need. And and I'm glad that Paul included this list because I am sure that if we're honest with ourselves, as we read through this long list, for all of us, one or more items rang our bell. That either now or through our experience as human beings, even as Christians, oh, there's me. There's my area of struggle. And so this means that when we come to this matter of sex and sexuality, Paul is saying, look, none of us have a right to stand in a position of superior judgment and condemnation on others because we all have our area of sin that we turn to in in an act of self-lordship and self-worship. We all turn to something. For some of us, we turn to money. And greed expresses itself because for some reason, we think that the accumulation of more things means that we are significant. Or or we may turn to, to lying and distorting the truth and tearing others down to build ourselves up because at that moment, we want acceptance with others so badly that we will worship ourselves and we will exercise self-lordship and reject what Jesus says about honesty and slandering in order to get what we want, which is acceptance from others. For others, the need for comfort is so deep. And and that need is a legitimate need, but in an act of self-lordship, We will turn to some kind of sexual immorality, sexual sin, to get that comfort that can come through that act. So all of us are included, and Paul says when we consistently do these things and we are not repentant, The Holy Spirit is not tearing us apart and preaching in our hearts so that we know that what we're doing is sinful and we begin to turn from this sin when if that's what's occurring in our lives, he is calling our salvation into question. You will not inherit the kingdom of God when you practice these things in an unrepentant manner. He's saying that. We can't miss it. But secondly, Paul does do something in his passage. He puts sex and sexuality center stage because this is a major issue for the Corinthians, whose culture, in an eerie way, mirrors our own culture today. And so, in a list of these sins, he starts out with all of these sexual sins and he does it for a reason. And what does he say? What are you guys thinking? You are thinking wrongly. You're thinking unbiblically about sex and their wrong thinking towards sex. It sounds awfully familiar to what we see today. Everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me, they say. Doesn't that sound familiar? Hey, it's just sex. It's just sex. I can do whatever makes me happy because God wants me to be happy. I'm free to pursue whatever it is that makes me happy. I'm free to be whoever I envision myself to be. Everything is permissible. Or food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That gets expressed in our society in a couple of different ways. For, for some, they're, they're taught that sex is dirty. It's just this low Biological need that is there. For others, they just discount the, the spiritual and emotional, the sacred aspects of sex. I guess sex is it's just a physical act. It's just your body. Your body's no big deal. You know, when you're hungry, what do you do? You eat to satisfy that hunger. When, when you need to sleep, when you're tired, you sleep. And, and and when you need sexual release, well, you just have sex. It's like eating. You scratch that itch. Satisfy that appetite. It's, a pro- it's no big deal. Paul responds to this by saying, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Why do you think Paul responds in this way? What he's saying here is he's addressing this idea that sex is not some private personal matter. Your sex life And your sexuality is not a private, personal matter. The idea that you should just be true to yourself and do whatever feels right to you, that's wrong thinking. It's unbiblical thinking. Let me be a little firmer. It's a lie out of the pits of hell. And it's contrary to how God has designed you and what he wants you to to experience sexually. And so Paul says, he opens it all up with do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Repent. And in, in repentance, the first step in repentance is having a change of mind, of taking on the mind of Christ. Your wrong thinking about sex Results and statements like this and care and living out of this kind of paradigm and worldview and it's wrong thinking and it has eternal consequences. And actually, let's go back. He says some of the consequences here is that you will you will go into areas of sexual sin that again it calls into question: do we know Christ when it's consistently indulged and not repented of? The, the idea of, of sexually immoral, that's kind of the first phrase. That's kind of a catch-all. This would be like, like premarital sex, voyeurism, you know, being engaged in uh, things like polyamory or going to strip clubs or anything that is sexually oriented for your sexual satisfaction that is outside of marriage. And you may be married, you may not be married. It's just a, a general term. But then he gets very specific adultery. We understand what that is. That is that when we d- decide in an act of self-lordship that I need to give myself to someone who is not my spouse. And, and this in our world, just so we're clear, this can be done physically or this can be done virtually in our world today, but that's adultery. Nor male prostitutes, Uh, The expression, male prostitutes, this is the T and the Q of LGBTQ. This would be men dressing as women to play the part of the woman in a sexual relationship. Or vice versa, a woman dressing and playing the part of a man in a sexual relationship. Homosexual offenders hits the, the LGB of the LGBTQ paradigm. And we're going to touch more on the sexuality aspects of LGBTQ next week. We're going, to, we're going to dive deep into it, and we're going to focus on how to address this cultural movement with the grace and the truth of the gospel. But this morning, as I talked to all of you, probably the majority of whom do not fit within the LGBTQ paradigm, but some of you, you will. But we all have one thing in common. We are all corrupted and broken by sin. And since humanity's sexual desires and passions are distorted and corrupted by sin, what we need is the gospel. Wherever you find yourself sexually, we all need the gospel. We all need the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will restore us. And we all need it. Many of us, we have real sex or sexuality struggles, and they're real. Others of us have been wounded by people who had problems and issues with their sexual lives and sexual expressions. But the answer for every one of us, whether perpetrator or victim, is the gospel. Our hope is ultimately found there. You know, Paul Tripp writes this. He, he, he says, our hope is not in behavior modification. As how many times, even as a Christian, that I have fought sin in my own life and I try to do it through behavior modification. And that will work for a little while, you know, and that can give us space so that the gospel can kick in and so certainly take advantage of those things that put fences in our lives that can help us get some breathing space before we are able to finally come to our senses and turn to the gospel, but it's the gospel that delivers us. So Tripp writes, you will never win the battle with sexual sin by just attempting to harness your behavior because every wrong sexual act is connected to a decision, which is connected to a desire in your heart. You always give your heart away before you surrender your body to what is wrong. Wrong. Always give your heart away before you surrender your body to what is wrong. So our only hope is the gospel. So the question is, how does the gospel deliver us from sexual idolatry? What does Paul say in that passage? The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It starts with this simple understanding that Jesus is our Lord. He's our master. He is the way, the truth, and the life. What we think may be true for us, ultimately, and don't take this the wrong way, I don't mean it the way it's probably going to sound. It doesn't matter. What you and I think about ourselves isn't ultimately what matters. It's what Jesus says about us yes. that matters. He's our creator. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's our master and Lord. And so when I am being tempted and I'm looking and I'm, and man, do I ever have the ability, whatever the sin may be, sexual or not. I have such an infinite ability to self-rationalize that desire that is welling up in my heart. And that desire itself is sin. It's an example of the radical corruption of sin and how it's affected us as human beings. And then that internal struggle begins. Do I indulge or not? And and man, can I ever self-rationalize and self-worship and exert lordship in my life. But the gospel says, Jerry, you're not Lord. Church, you're not Lord over your life. Jesus is. And what he says, he is the word incarnate. What he says, no matter how countercultural, is absolute eternal truth. It's what he says. And we have what he says in his word, and we see it and what he's taught. And so when we come to any of these issues, how does the gospel help us? It helps us first right off the bat by saying our standard is Jesus. He's Lord. He rules me. I don't have the right to rebel against my Lord and exert self-lordship, regardless of the sin. Certainly, it's true with sexual sin. The gospel helps us by helping us to see that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to our Lord, who laid down his life on the cross for our sins so we could be reconciled to God. The gospel helps us when we're tempted and struggling. We can lean into Jesus because he's always present in our lives through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he's placed us in his body, the church. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And by the way, that's just the example, any sexual sin here. Never, never, explanation point he says. Literally he says, God forbid that I would ever do this. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He goes right back to Genesis 2. You know what he's saying here? Sex is more than physical. It is spiritual and emotional, psychological. This one flesh principle has the trappings of the sacred attached to it because it is an expression of covenant renewal. That's what it's supposed to be for. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you grasp what Paul is saying there? He is saying that Jesus is connected to everything in our lives. And so when we indulge sexual sin, We are, as Paul Tripp says, we are loving our pleasure so much that I'm willing to connect the Holy One to that which is unholy. It is an infinitely blasphemous act of self-worship and self-lordship. And so he says flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The good news of the gospel is this. When we face these temptations, and we all face these temptations, these challenges to what we think about sex and sexuality, Jesus is living inside of us through the person of the Holy Spirit. We can turn to him in our moment of temptation when we need power. And he's placed us within the body of Christ. We can turn to our brothers and sisters. And Christ, this is one of the reasons we stress being in groups and biblical community because we need people in our lives at the moment of temptation who if necessary, we can even pick up the phone and say, I need to talk. I need help. I'm being tempted right now. I want to do this. And these desires are welling up inside of me. And I know it's not godly. I need help. Right now, will you be with me? Will you pray with me? God, Jesus has through the gospel given us resources. He's given us a body that can come alongside and love us and pick us up and help us get back on the right track when we fail. Because we're members of a body that loves one another. It doesn't reject one another when when we do fall into sexual sin. So let me just pause right there for a moment. Uh, I, don't know everybody, I don't know what's going on in any of your sex lives, and just to be clear, I don't want to know. Okay. Um, anybody who's struggling here this morning, and we all do at different times, can I just say, God loves you. And I love you. And our church loves you. And we are all sinners. We all find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 6 in some way or another. We all worship ourselves at different times. We all exert self-lordship. And one of the beauties of the gospel is that rather than condemning one another, we love one another. We accept one another. We don't, always, we don't affirm what's going on in our lives. We know it's sin, but we accept one another as fellow sinners who put our arms around one another and say, now let's follow Jesus. And we do this together. And so whatever it is you're struggling in, you don't need to hide it. You know, one of the biggest problems for Gen Z right now with all the confusion that they have about sexuality is they're afraid to talk to people who could help them they're afraid of being condemned they're afraid of yuck and what they need to hear from us is yes i understand your struggle because i have my own struggles we all need jesus and jesus is the one who can deliver you as he's delivered me let's do this together This is the gospel in action. And the biggest point of all about the gospel, how it helps us, is what do we read? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus has already accomplished our deliverance from whatever the sin may be. He's already accomplished it. He's already paid the price. And so this week, many of us may be tempted in some way sexually, some of us are going to fail. And others of us, through the help of the Holy Spirit, are going to withstand the temptation. For those of you who thankfully, by God's grace, withstand the temptation, understand at that moment, God does not love you one iota more for withstanding the temptation. And for those of you who fail, I want you to understand that the gospel teaches us that God does not love us one iota less for our failure. And the reason why God's love is 100% all the time towards us is because Jesus accomplished our deliverance. He's already paid for the penalty of our sins, no matter what it may be, so that God can love us unconditionally and unreservedly, pour out his grace upon us, his mercy upon us, and his compassion. This is the gospel. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. And when you believe this, and you understand it, this is who you are in Christ. The things of this world or the sexual things that we think will make us important or make us accepted begin to lose their luster because we are already infinitely accepted. Why do I need that when I already have this. The gospel is what delivers us, church. And wherever you're struggling, turn to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He will give you that help in your time of need. Lord Jesus, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that all of us can come before you this morning into this church as sinners in need of your grace We thank you for the salvation that we receive through you, Lord Jesus. And oh, how we thank you that there is no condemnation. Be with us this week. Whether it's sexual sin or any other kind of sin, that they're all expressions of our self-lordship and self-worship and idolatry. Help us more and more to turn from the trinkets of this world and the flesh and the devil so that we can enjoy the infinite riches we already have in our Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.